Hey, Salt Lake, at the risk of being too personal, is your mattress sagging? If you are rolling into a taco every night, I am begging you to visit your local mattress warehouse and just try something a little firmer. Your spine is the center of your being, and I don't just want you to have good posture. I want you to Disney princess your way around this city, flush with optimism from a good night's sleep. Visit mattresswarehouseutah.com to find the location nearest you. That's mattresswarehouseutah.com. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. There are two things that keep a Salt Laker up at night. One, the crisis at the Great Salt Lake. And two, the retribution of the Utah legislature. And guess what? Both fears are playing out in the saga of Utah Lake, a freshwater body connected to the Great Salt Lake by the Jordan River. Because beneath the pond scum lies a tale of backroom scheming and vengeance. So why aren't more people up in arms? It's Wednesday, November 29th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Leah Larson, Salt Lake Tribune's water and land reporter. A couple of years ago, there was this big idea to build islands on Utah Lake in Utah County, which, got to be honest, to me, sounded totally nuts from the get-go. How did this end up on the table? That's a great question. Um, So Utah Lake has had issues for a long time. There are invasive carp species in the lake. There are issues with wetlands. There are issues with algal blooms, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware of. So it's just had issues for a long time. And scientists have been slowly working on ways to recover the lake and kind of bring it back to a more sustainable state. But then, yeah, this group of developers kind of came out of left field with this idea to dredge the lake, make it seven feet deeper, and then take all that sediment to build islands for a city of like potentially half a million people, claiming that this would be the solution to solve all the lake's environmental problems. So on the one hand the lake is ostensibly toxic. But on the other hand, let's develop on top of it and encourage people to live there. Yeah. I I mean, I think ecologists would argue the lake isn't toxic, but it does have issues. But yeah, in these developers' minds, uh, um, yeah, deepening the lake, the problem with the lake is that it's shallow would be their argument. And if we make it deeper, we'll not only be able to store more water for Utah's growing water shortage crisis, but we'll be able to have boating and islands and all this real estate and make a bunch of money. So that was the idea. Well, the thing about your reporting on all of this that's so intriguing to me is that developers and lawmakers haven't really played fair in this Utah Lake saga. From the islands proposal to debunking myths about the lake's health now suing scientists, taking away state-funded research money, a little bit of vengeance in, in the mix here. When did things start to get sketchy? So where I would say the timeline with all that begins is 2020, kind of in the thick of the pandemic. We were transitioning from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, this dredging company called Lake Restoration Solutions, or LRS. That's when they started to get try to get like hundreds of millions of dollars in federal loans for this island building project. They were going through a program that's normally used to like upgrade a city's wastewater treatment plant or water treatment plants. But they were trying to argue that they were doing something sort of similar, like building public infrastructure for water. So they were going after this EPA loan. 
And that's where, you know, this big pile of money was on the table and, and things just seemed to kind of get more complicated. And there was a lot of things going on behind the scenes that we've tried to recreate the paper trail with court documents and public records requests. So I think that's when I would say things kind of started heating up this 2020. So basically when they kind of invited the feds into the mix? <laughs> yeah. And not only that, so the feds like to see that there's like local investment as well to kind of match their investment. So they got a city, uh, a letter from Vineyard City's mayor somehow pledging $5 million to this project and a letter from the governor's office pledging $10 million to this project. They also got a letter from the director of what was then the Utah Lake Commission, now the Utah Lake Authority. And he was pledging tens of millions of dollars for projects that were already happening on Utah Lake, things like removal of invasive species. So he's pledging all this money to the project as well, even though, crucially, he did not control that money. That was controlled by other state agencies who had no idea he was promising this money to this this big real estate project. I will say, the piece of this that I am hooked into is the retribution piece, because I think as a Salt Laker, one of my worst fears is that the legislature is capable of seeking vengeance on people that they disagree with or who get in the way of their projects. Can you lay out more about that for me? Like, who is Ben Abbott and why is he suddenly a victim to their wrath? <laughs> yeah, I think this is kind of the component that draws a lot of people in. But so, so Ben Abbott is an ecology professor at Brigham Young University. And from the get-go, he's kind of been one of the most vocal critics of this project because he studies Utah Lake and he's pretty familiar with it. He held an emergency symposium while LRS was trying to get this big, massive federal loan. Um, so he held this emergency symposium sharing the latest science, inviting state regulators, university professors, everybody with a stake in the lake to come present just so he could get out there in the public, like, what is the current state of Utah Lake? What does it need? What does it not need, right? So he's doing things like that. And as the discussions are heating up, cities are inviting him to come present the latest science to their city councils. Some of those cities passed resolutions against the dredging project, including Provo and American Fork. So I guess LRS didn't like this because text messages show that they were trying to, quote unquote, light a fire under certain lawmakers and get them to take action against cities that were, quote, behaving irresponsibly. And they were also, there was also an indication they were gearing up for a defamation lawsuit against Abbott, as well as trying to find ways like that he was being receiving state funds for his research and how they could potentially pull it. So they did end up filing a defamation lawsuit last year. And then Abbott crowdsourced funds to counter Sue, saying that they were trying to silence legitimate public debate, you know, free speech. And they also, though, were were successful in pulling a $500,000 state grant Abbott had received to study those mega wildfires we had in like 2018. So he was studying the watershed to see how it was recovering and like all the sediment pollution that was going into the water supply of Utah County and how long it would take to recover. So an important project for the public, but uh, that's, that funding did get pulled and we don't know which lawmakers actually were responsible for it. Because it was done through this kind of mysterious thing that the legislature uses called the appropriations process. So with a bill, lawmakers will meet, you know, lobbyists will come and speak for against a bill. The public can come in and speak for against a bill. 
There's like line items within the bill text and it gets, you know, debated on the floor. So the appropriations project is different. It just kind of shows up overnight and they vote on it as a block. So we don't know who's for or against certain line items or who's behind them or who is sponsoring them and who is pushing them. So that this funding was cut as part of a larger watershed restoration initiative program that the state runs. So it wasn't just Professor Abbott who lost his funding. It was other scientists and professors that were, you know, potentially doing projects to benefit the state and our watersheds and our water supplies. So it seems like this appropriations approach is kind of a way of turning what should be public debate into a backroom conversation. I mean, you've been reporting on land and water use in this state for a long time. Do you see that often? Yeah, it is kind of, you know, as a reporter, it's, it's a little frustrating at times. For example, the CEO behind this whole lake dredging idea, his name is Ryan Benson. He has received millions and millions of dollars from lawmakers over the years to lobby against federal protections for wolves and sage grouse. So he's apparently very familiar with how this process works and who who to, you know, talk to. But yeah, I would say, you know, back backroom deals is is an apt descriptor of what's going on and, you know, be nice if there was more transparency because this is still taxpayer money. Salt Lake City, what if this is the year you host Easter dinner or brunch? Harmon's makes big meals easy to prepare with delicious holiday specialties made from scratch. Just heat and serve, baby. Lay a pre-cooked honey ham on the table and absorb the compliments from your family or friends. They don't need to know you napped instead of staring down the oven. And if you're not the host but need something to bring, here are just a few of my favorite spring ideas. First of all, Harmon's fragrant Easter lilies will impress anybody's mom or delight a neighbor. Now there's no need to even heat up a pre-made side like deviled eggs or fresh cut pineapple, but bonus points if you transfer them into your own dish. And as listeners of this show well know, I will lose my mind if you show up to my house with Harmon's hot cross buns. I invite you to make some new Easter traditions with Harmon's. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I mean, you brought up Vineyard and the mayor of Vineyard kind of putting a little bit of weight behind this islands project initially. Now we are looking kind of down the barrel of this Utah City idea, which I'm wondering if you think is kind of just the land version of what they wanted to do on top of the lake. Like it's a 650-acre kind of new city development in Vineyard facing the lake. Yep. I mean, possibly. There's a lot of the same players and I do think it's worth noting that, you know, a lot of our lawmakers in the state house have interests in development and real estate, which, you know, is kind of unusual compared to other states. So I think there's always some kind of real estate idea circling through that maybe is sometimes half-baked, as in the case of these, these islands. It seems to get a lot of approval for some reason. 
Utah City and, you know, the islands are just just two examples. There are other things, too. So, yeah, the state prison would be one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, the gondola kind of comes to mind. Like, even the, the, what is it, the Lake Powell pipeline. Like, it does feel like what's so interesting to me about this Utah Lake story is that it feels like a, I don't know if we could even call it a cautionary tale if at this point it's kind of just like the way we do business in this state. But it feels like when the state decides or state leaders decide they're bought into these kinds of massive, expensive developments or projects, I worry about the lack of oversight as a taxpayer. Like it can feel very out of our control. If we work backwards from this moment in in the reporting that you've been doing since the very beginning of this project. What are some of the moments that could have used oversight or intervention? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, the appropriations process we talked about, that it would be nice if that's more transparent. But I think too, you know, the state has this army of scientists and engineers and professionals working for it in our our state agencies, like the Department of Environmental Quality and the Department of Natural Resources, which had we just tapped them out of the like the get-go and asked them, like, is this a good idea? Is this even feasible? We could have saved a lot of time and resources, at least on the island project, because it was the um, Division of State Lands that ultimately determined last year that you can't sell off the lake bed to a private developer to build islands. It's unconstitutional. So if we had just asked them first instead of the last step, you know, that that, that could have, I think, made a big difference in oversight. I mean, we already have these public servants at our disposal, right? Why, why aren't we using them? Right. And we pay for them. Yes, we do. Yeah. Like as taxpayers, we pay their salaries to be able to employ their wisdom. Right. Right. So I, I think that's a big takeaway for me. Whose job is this kind of oversight or intervention? <laughs> Definitely some of those state agencies. I mean, that's, that is their, their role to, to protect our land and to protect our environment. That's what they're there for. I think maybe there's a case to be made that maybe Utah needs some reform to its, its lobbyist policy. Mm. Um, they seem to have a lot of sway and a lot of power. And like, even if they are violating our current policies, it doesn't seem to be a lot of penalties or, you know, anything to dissuade them from doing so. So maybe that's something that should be explored. I mean, that sounds like a job for the attorney general's office. It's actually the lieutenant governor's office that oversees lobbies. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So elections and lobbying fall under the lieutenant governor's office. Right, exactly. <laughs> yep. They have to, just like a candidate for office, they have to register their information. The other thing that I want to ask you about is the governor's press conference that never happened. Because <laughs> he was also kind of in the mix here. Yeah, that was um, kind of an interesting revelation that came out of these public documents as well. LRS had applied, it wasn't successful in getting its first EPA loan, so it tried again, and it tried to get even more money. And so as that was all heating up, and they were about to announce their decisions on who would receive these loans, LRS was emailing the governor's office trying to set up this news conference in like the Swinky Gold Room, um, where they were going to announce that that LRS had been selected for its loan. It was one of the only public-private partnerships to receive this federal money to date. And one of the scientists working for the Division of Water Quality, who was not involved in this loan in any way and was kind of kept in the dark about it, well, she was still at least familiar with how this loan process works, so it didn't sound right to her. She, she sent an email off to EPA and said, we, you know, we're hearing rumors that these guys got approved a loan for their dredging project. Is that true? 
And EPA wrote back and told them that, no, they had told LRS weeks before that they weren't approved at all, that they were just on a wait list. And that (laughs) actually the next step isn't that you get money from EPA, you're invited to apply for money. So nobody had been selected to quote unquote receive money and especially not LRS. So uh, needless to say, the press conference was canceled and the state employee kind of saved the governor's office from a potentially embarrassing announcement. Very embarrassing. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I've asked you this question in different iterations, but you've done a lot of reporting around this topic. What lessons can we learn from this story so it doesn't happen again? I would say a lot of the why all of this came to light is just some diligent work by residents of Utah County. So they were filing records requests. They were reaching out to me and, and I assume other reporters. They took this seriously because it was in their backyard And they were reaching out to their state lawmakers and saying, look at this and look at this. And so I would say, you know, sometimes it feels fruitless to engage in the public process, but but it can work and it can pay off. And, you know, I'm really thankful to all these people who did, you know, just didn't back down and kept going after these records and things. And all this was able to come to light. It is heartening to hear you say that because I do feel like sometimes when I'm rolling up my sleeves to submit a public comment, I just, it feels a little bit like a head bashing against the wall kind of (laughs) exercise. Like I'm like, here we are. (laughs) Certainly not in the driver's seat right now. (laughs) (laughs) I get that too. And it wasn't them reaching out to lawmakers and and writing emails that actually um, brought all this to light either. It was just more them getting the records and making them public themselves. But, you know, that that's another part of the public process that you can certainly use, you know, beyond just making a comment at a public meeting, you know. Um, stay vigilant. <laughs> stay vigilant. Yeah. They are organizing. Well, we've talked a lot about how much of this happened behind closed doors. And we're talking about major players here. How hard was it for you to report this out? Can you pull back the curtain a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't easy. I think the biggest revelations came from Professor Abbott's countersuit through the lawsuit discovery process. That's how we got a lot of these text messages that were implying that, you know, the lobbyists were goading lawmakers into punishing cities and scientists who weren't falling in line. Yeah, big kudos to Professor Abbott because a lot of this came to light through his counter lawsuit, including the text messages where lobbyists were apparently trying to goad lawmakers into retaliating against cities and the scientists who were raising concerns. Those are things that you can't get through traditional public records requests, but LRS's lawsuit has apparently backfired on them. And now they filed for bankruptcy. So a lot (sighs) now is even more coming to light about the finances. And, you know, it's been interesting to follow and I'm sure, sure more will be revealed as we go. It's, it's just one of those stories where you're like, I just wanted to believe this wasn't how it was done. I know that's naive. (laughs) On that note, I mean, there is so much that can be so jading about Utah's relationship with land and water from corruption, like we're talking about today, to even just good old-fashioned consumption when we think about, like, the Great Salt Lake. We rarely, it feels like, have good news on this beat, but I have to put you on the spot here. Is there any good news that you have been reporting on lately that you can share? Well, I just think it's great that we're paying attention to Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake. For a long time, they were just kind of an afterthought, you know, like they were just these stinky lakes that nobody cared about. But now we're, we're putting up a lot of money to to help them. The island's idea might be dead, but lawmakers are still investing millions into improving its health, which I think is a big win. 
educated themselves on the the issues associated with the lake and what actually needs to be done. So I think, you know, we shouldn't just rail against lawmakers on this issue. They are actually taking steps to help both of those lakes and they're very aware of our water issues. So I think that's all great news. I love that lens. Leah Larson, Salt Lake Tribune land and water reporter. Thank you so much for your time and for your reporting. You are relentless in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for your interest. As part of Lake Restoration Solutions, or LRS's bankruptcy filings, we learned that the company's former executives were paying themselves handsomely through their own consulting firms. The cash flow even extended to the former CEO's son, who made $3,200 for a one-month internship. You can't make this stuff up. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.